So I hold myself in contempt if you try to pull me up here to court with that attorney. the questions here, carjacker Willie. Objection! I'm going to allow it. It characterizes the defendant as a carjacker. You didn't kill Thompson, but you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Ned Thompson! I killed him! I killed him! I killed him! I killed him! Order. You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! They're out of order! Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 278. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. That over there is Andrew Torres, Optimist Prime. How are you doing, Andrew Torres? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to test my optimism today. I am really, really looking forward to having uh, uh, our most frequent guest on the show, back on the show, Andrew Seidel. Um, we're going to uh, pepper him about uh, Christian nationalism and uh, is the country headed down a horrible pit of despair from which there is no exit so sounds fun can't wait to get over to it uh, <laughs> quick uh, bit of pre-segment uh, stuff here we we might have to be bumping a, a really good listener question for time uh, do you want to tease that yeah, yeah, yeah. So Reed Henninger asked uh, on on Twitter, RGH184, he says, uh, in response to uh, our good news coming out of Kansas, uh, episode 276, uh, he wanted to throw some cold water on that. He said, well, look, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe and Casey, couldn't a GOP Congress just pass a law banning abortion at the federal level, mooting all the state level constitutional rights mm. that you're talking about. The answer to that is no. I am mm. very, very confident that the answer to that is no. But I'm going to have to talk about a couple of cases to answer the question. And um, and I think that uh, that we're going to give that time to Andrew Seidel. Uh, it's going to be super interesting. So answer to your question is no. I will tell you why super soon, but not today. Yeah, you gotta have time for the full Andrew Torres deep dive. Don't wanna, uh, don't wanna give give that short that at all. So, but I'm glad you give us the, uh, you gave us the Bill Barr summary kind of of it of that question. <laughs> Except I hope less misleading. <laughs> it couldn't be more misleading. So. <laughs> all right, well let's hop on over and get Andrew Seidel on the line. Have you ever tried a jury trial? I have not. Civil? No. Every lawyer is tempted. Criminal. No. Bench? No. Not only to eat forbidden fruit, but to become the snake. State or federal court? I have not. Why am I persecuted here? And we are joined by Andrew Seidel. How's it going, Andrew? I am well. Thank you so much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. Oh, we are always excited to have you, but particularly this time because you've got a new book coming out on May 14th. That's just in a a couple of days from when this will go out. And it is called The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. And this is good timing. This is right up our alley. This is <laughs> couldn't be more in line with everything that we on this show are interested in as, you know, secular people and as uh, law geekery people and original anti-originalists, all that good <laughs> stuff. So excited to talk about the book. Uh, now, I know, Andrew Torres, you uh, wanted to maybe embarrass Andrew Seidel a little bit. I, I'm I'm gonna embarrass him because look everybody listening to the show you know Andrew's a I think six time maybe seven time guest on here they know you're great uh, we we know you're great you you don't have to take my word for it um, the Andrew has gotten as a uh, as an endorsement blurb in the book jacket something that for me is like uh, it, you know is 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 my white whale right um this, <laughs> this is so uh so so dean erwin chemerinsky wrote 
two of the textbooks that I used in law school. Well, we <laughs> all know who Dean Rowan Sherminsky is. And that's a household <laughs> place. I mean... He, he, among law students, he is a, a household name, right? I mean, he's he's kind of he's like a law god. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's 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 true. And and here's what he said about Andrew's book, which uh, you know, again, the 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 level of of jealousy and a tiny bit of hatred here is palpable from from media. Right? <laughs> uh, Dean Chemerinsky writes, Andrew Seidel has written. A wonderful book that explodes a frequently expressed myth that the United States was created as a Christian nation. Seidel looks at the history before the ratification of the Constitution and refutes the view that the United States was meant to be Judeo-Christian. He also demolishes the myth that American law is based on scripture such as the Ten Commandments. In this beautifully written book, Seidel powerfully shows that Christian nationalists are arguing for a vision that is at odds with the essential nature of the Constitution and American government. That's... I, it's, I mean that is just amazing as as an endorsement and um and 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 seriously um you should be proud that 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 there is I mean we've we've bantered back and forth here a little bit but um but Chemerinsky is uh, absolutely one of the towering intellects in the field and um and and you should rightfully be proud on on that endorsement that's that's a big one I mean, I, I, I really am on that one. I think I texted you uh, when that email came in, actually, because I was just like geeking. I was like running around the office. And <laughs> you, you, you did, and I don't believe that my text back could be read uh, consistent with this, uh, <laughs> this show's uh, clean iTunes rating. Well, we'll have to do a, uh, well, a patron While we're special. on the topic of compliments, I got one more. I'm on uh, Amazon on your book to pre-order here, and uh, one last comment is, Frequently bought together, the founding myth plus the Mueller report by Washington Post on paperback. <laughs> so that's an, uh, there you go. I don't know what that means, but it's uh, that's a that seems like a good omen. But um, I think I feel I'll like maybe it. we should start with the basics and and just ask uh, what what led you to want to write on this particular topic. I'm, I'm I can imagine a number of answers, but what did it for you? What was the specific thing? I mean, it, this actually started off as a book. It was it was actually going to be not a book. It was going to be a law review article. Uh, and I was looking at this frequent claim that we are that our laws and the foundation of the United States was built on the Ten Commandments, and that there's this really heavy influence between those ten rules and the founding of America. Um, We've seen this from some of the originalist and conservative Supreme Court justices. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the Ten Commandments monuments in the cases where they have been upheld on public land, they've been upheld. Uh, and it never made sense to me. So I, I kind of wanted to dive into that. And then this was that was 10 years ago. This was actually while I was still uh, just finishing up law school. And then from there, the more I researched and the more I learned about the the arguments that Christian nationalists make – the more alarmed I was and the more I wanted to not just refute them with facts, but also with with better arguments that Trump was elected president. And I really wish he was not. But it, it makes my book that much more relevant and useful to the nation right now because Trump was elected because of Christian nationalism. Oh, uh, so it went from oh, this no, sort no, of no, like no 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 we got we, we, I'm no. sorry we we got to jump in there yeah okay come, okay go for it yeah come on <clears throat> Tr- like I know Trump was elected because of Christian nationalism how would you I how know. would you prove that claim yeah so uh, there's actually a a number of studies that Andrew Whitehead out of Clemson University has done with some of his colleagues and he looked at the twenty the data from the 2016 election and he wanted to know, you know how did this happen which was what the question everybody was asking. And he was looking at what was the best predictor of whether or not somebody was going to be a Trump voter. And the best predictor was not their political party, not whether they were Republican or not, not their religion. It wasn't their race or their racist tendencies. It was whether or not they believed that the United States was a Christian nation and should return to that foundation. Right. But that's also going to correlate with some racism and misogyny. (laughs) It is. It is. And it's going to it's going to correlate with conservative politics and it's going to correlate with conservative religion. And that's why this is such a a threat to our country, because it's the nexus of all of those things that everybody's kind of talking about rolled into one ugly threatening package yeah and it certainly seems like the um evangelicals were obviously key and getting finding a way to convert trump into a 
even though he's clearly not a Christian and clearly not any sort of religious minded person, nevertheless, making him a, a kind of a battle in the Christian nationalist war, you know, a cause rather in the Christian nationalist war uh, was a way to to get him a lot of support from people who you wouldn't think would ever support somebody like him. Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, there it was over 80 percent of evangelicals supported Trump. That's still one in five that didn't. Mm -hmm. But again, the better predictor is is whether or not they are Christian nationalists. And there's just there happens to be a massive overlap between those populations. Um, And, you know, Christian nationalism is sort of this. I I think I wrote in the book that it's this incestuous marriage between conservative religion and conservative politics. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it is. And and you can see it all the time in the rhetoric that Trump and Pence and this administration trot out. You know, if you listened to Trump at the National Day of Prayer event that they held at the White House or listened to him speak at the Conservative Political Action Conference, you know, he he constantly trots out these myths and the idea that um, not, not only that we were founded as a Christian nation and founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but things like um, were we, uh, our kids pledge allegiance uh, to one nation under God. They talk about in God we trust. He regularly mentions the four references to, quote, our creator in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and that Ben Franklin suggested that the founding fathers pray at the Constitutional Convention. And all of these were already things that I was addressing and debunking and exploding in the founding myth. So, uh, and and again, uh, you know, because... You have a you have a friendly uh, you have a friendly environment here. I want to I want to try and push. Uh, I want to try and make it as hostile as we can in this interview to you know to to, to push at some of that. I want to go back to your initial statement when you were kind of talking about getting involved. You know, ten years ago, uh, looking at some of the the Ten Commandments cases, and you said you you see this kind of myth of Christian nationalism, right? My, my, the, so the counter argument here would be, uh, look, uh, Mike Pence is low hanging fruit, right? We, we get, <laughs> right. He is unquestionably a Christian nationalist. It's been his entire political career. And, you know, it's unfortunate that he's been elevated to the vice presidency, but this, this view really can't be taken seriously in, you know, the judiciary, for example. And, and, and let me, um, let me quote a little bit from Van Orden versus Parrott, right? And we this is a case we've talked about uh, before when we were talking about the uh, the the Bladensburg Cross case, the the AHA case. Um, this is the 2005 case uh, that, for whatever reason, Judge Breyer decided uh, that that. Uh, the Texas Ten Commandments monument could stay, uh, but the Kentucky one could not. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to to drill down, but um, <laughs> but 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 here's what right Breyer's opinion says: this right says, look, in this case, we have a display of the Ten Commandments, but contextually, it's around other lawgivers. Look at our own courtroom, and again, this is somewhat misleading right that that uh, the ten commandments adorn the metal gates lining the north and south sides of the courtroom as well as the doors leading into the courtroom moses sits on the exterior east facade of the building holding the ten commandments tablets um those are not you know no, it, it's just he's holding you know two tablets there but uh, but then i think kind of the key part of the passage uh Breyer says is this he says of course the ten commandments are religious They were so viewed at their inception and so remain. The monument, therefore, has religious significance. According to Judeo-Christian belief, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. But Moses was a lawgiver as well as a religious leader, and the Ten Commandments have an undeniable historical meaning, as the foregoing examples demonstrate. Simply having religious content or promoting a message consistent with religious doctrine does not run afoul of the Establishment Clause. Hey, folks. Opening Arguments is brought to you by OpenFit. Getting fit and staying healthy always sounds easier said than done. It is not easy. It's not just you. Getting fit is hard. It's a, it's a challenging thing. Don't feel bad. It's very difficult. But OpenFit is bringing you something new that makes it easier to never miss a sweat session. You can lose the commute to the gym and let the workouts come to you. OpenFit takes all the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. I have to say, I'm somewhat of a fitness guy. I uh, I love playing hockey. I love staying fit. And I have to tell you, if you don't know what you're doing in a workout, you might honestly be kind of wasting your time. If you are just, I don't know, 
jogging for a certain amount of time, it doesn't actually burn that many calories. And it might honestly feel a lot harder than a good interval workout or something. So that's why you need something like the 600 seconds workout with Devin Wiggins. That's my personal favorite because who doesn't have 600 seconds? Let me do some math. That's something like 10 minutes. Who doesn't have 10 minutes? I mean, no, no matter how busy you and I are, and we very much are, I know you have 10 minutes. I know I have 10 minutes. And since you can access it anywhere, anytime, on your computer, on your web-enabled TV, your tablet, and even your phone or Roku, that means fewer excuses. And that, honestly, that was my problem with the gym membership. It's too many opportunities for excuses. Oh, I got to drive across town. Ah, oh, the traffic right now, it's going to be bad. I don't want to get in the car, do all blah, blah, blah. It, this gets rid of all those excuses. It, it, it eases the resistance that we all have when, that we have to overcome when it comes to working out. OpenFit has changed the way I work out, and with the code OA, you can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Okay, so use our code OA and start using OpenFit for your journey to a healthier life. And right now, during the OpenFit 30-Day Challenge, our listeners get a special extended 30-day free trial membership of OpenFit, where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days when you text OA to 303030. That's OA to 303030. You'll get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information, totally free. Take advantage of this offer. So all you have to do is text OA to 303030. Let me kind of put all of that that together with you. Look, I'm not a fan of the Van, Van Orden decision, uh, <laughs> but but I would argue, I, or I could argue, I'm going to argue to you here, that this is... This is pretty narrow. This is saying the Ten Commandments are appropriate uh, in a context with other lawgivers, and they are appropriate because of their historical significance, um, both of which are, are true propositions, right? This is not part of the, the myth of Christian national. Where, where's the judicial embrace of, uh, you know, of, of these scary Christian national feelings? Or aren't you just, you know, drumming this up out of whole cloth? Yes, I, I'm known for my fear mongering. Um, well, and, and, but let me first just give a create a shout out. I was actually uh, talking about this with one of the other attorneys in the office this morning because I've been doing a lot of the the secular podcasts lately, and this I get asked these questions or or specifically what's the best argument against your position, Andrew, on these podcasts all the time, and it's not something that I ever hear anywhere else, which I, I find to be really interesting. And I think it speaks very highly of, of the secular community and the, the communicators in it in general. Um, but now that I'm done, All right, now that you, uh, now that you've flattered me to not answer the yeah. question, answer the damn question, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you can look back through the establishment clause cases and you can see judges justifying little violations of the Establishment Clause on the backs of many of these, many of the things that I address in the book. Um, they There are a majority opinions that have mentioned, look, we have under God in the pledge and we have in God we trust on our money. Uh, and, and they are, they're not necessarily making them the central rationale for their opinion and Breyer's decision in Van Orden is so bizarre. Um, it, it's, it's, it's such an outlier in so many ways, but if you read Scalia's opinion in Van Orden, I mean, he is, he is far more explicit and does talk about the influence, uh, that the 10 commandments had. And he also mentions that he didn't realize there were different sets of 10 commandments in the Bible and that different religions interpreted them differently. Uh, but you can, you can look at those lies and and see them driving public policy today. I mean, you can see it in our education policy with Betsy DeVos. You can see it in the immigration policy. I mean, the Muslim ban is a really wonderful example of this. And I try to expound on that in the introduction of this book. Civil rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, uh, our foreign policy, you know, the shift of the embassy to Jerusalem was partly based on these these Christian nationalist rationale. And judges are deciding these cases based on lies and myth, not just on the culture war issues. And it's happening alarmingly more and more, not less and less. And I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard you talk about this before on, on the, the show, Andrew, where how the Supreme Court is just one court and it handles very small minority of the cases that get before it. But, you know, practicing in this area on a day-to-day -day basis, I can tell you that uh, the 
role history plays in courts deciding establishment clause cases, separation of state and church clause cases, is becoming alarmingly high. And history is very, very malleable, unfortunately. And when they start latching on to these this revisionist history of Christian nationalism, we're going to get uh, you know huge breaches in the wall of separation of between state and church, if not it being torn down altogether. So, yeah, I I I share that concern. <laughs> um, it, and I guess the 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 question is, I mean, let, let let me ask both parts. But if if one is operating under the assumption that uh, there are five sitting justices on the Supreme Court that have in print expressed approval for the accommodationist view of separation of church and state, which is to say, not having one. Um, <laughs> then, right, then guidance from the Supreme Court is about to become very, very bad very, very soon. Um, so w- what's the strat? Like, what what can we do to sort of, you know, fight those holding actions? Like, how, how can we educate judges? I mean, who should we be looking at? How can we educate judges so that they're not quoting from David Barton in their opinions or, you know, other, uh, you know, other aspects of sort of unwittingly buying into this, uh, you know, myth of Christian nationalism. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's kind of, I mean, I hope what I, what I did with the book really at, at its most basic to me, this is, this is a fight about what it is to be an American and the Christian nationalists want to redefine what it is to be an American, that to, that to be an American is to be a Christian and to be a Christian is to be an American. And once they've done that, they are going to seek to redefine the law accordingly. And they're kind of doing them concurrently. Um, and the, the claim that I examine and that the, the subtitle of the book comes from, I, I asked, did Judeo-Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States? And my thesis is that no, they didn't. And that those principles, Judeo-Christian principles, and especially the ones that are central to Christian nationalism, are so thoroughly opposed to the principles on which the United States was founded. that And they differ and conflict to, to such a degree that it's fair to say that Christianity is un-American. It's a bold statement. I understand it probably gets a lot of people's backs up, but I think it's something, it's one that we must make. Right? I, and I use the word un-American, even though it might make some people squeamish because it's got this, uh, it's got a value judgment that's that's built into it. But we are in a fight for our values. Uh, it's, so, so you know, tell me, tell me what you mean by that, right? Like what, what principles in particular do you think? Yeah. Are and are you saying Christianity context? as a whole or Christian nationalism specifically? A little bit, a little bit of both there, but I mean, like, let's just, let's just take the 10 commandments since we've been talking about them <laughs> yeah. a little bit on this one. I mean, the first commandment, I mean, first of all, you have to, and I do this in the book, it's kind of fun. You have to ask, well, which 10 commandments actually supposedly influenced the founding of our country? Um, because there's more than 10 commandments. There's four sets of 10 commandments in any given Bible. Um, and they're different religions interpret them slightly differently. Um, you know, some say don't kill others say don't murder, which might not sound like a big difference, but actually to your listeners, they should realize what, uh, yeah. what a big difference those two things could be. Um, but look, just, so just take the, the first commandment. I am the Lord, your God, you shall have no other gods before me, right? That is a statement that runs completely. It is completely antithetical to the founding value of this country, the free exercise of religion. It's completely antithetical to the First Amendment. It says that I am your God, you can't worship any other gods. And that that's precisely the right that our founders chose to protect and chose to enshrine in our Constitution. Those two principles are at loggerheads. They, they cannot ever agree. And so to, to elevate the one in spite of the other is, is in my mind, un-American. I know. I love how we talk about the Ten Commandments. And it's it's one thing, I guess, if you're making an argument that like, okay, well, from a historical perspective, it's okay to have a monument because like it's about the history of law. Uh, all right, maybe. But if you actually think the Ten Commandments have any bearing on law or like this country, how many of them are even laws? Like, okay, maybe murder. Sure. Uh, stealing. But like, it's like there's four, three, th- two or three of them that are just like, I'm God and I'm really jealous and make sure to not talk about other gods around me because I'll just I'll freak out, man. I'll freak out. That's like two or three of them. 
and then you know obey your parents that's not a law what what you know like there's a most of them aren't even things that are laws <laughs> and i mean those are all excellent points and i actually i walk the reader through every single one of those commandments and even the the prohibitions on murder and theft in the bible in the bible's version of the 10 commandments are not as clear cut as you would think at first. Um, they're, they're actually pretty exclusive. They really only apply to the in-group, not to the right, to anybody yeah. who. <laughs> so you have these first rules that tell people uh, how they should worship the God, like you said. Uh, you know, and, and incidentally, not only that the God is a jealous God, but that he punishes to the third and fourth generation uh, children for violating yeah. certain of those rules. I mean, literally promising to punish innocent children for the crimes of their parents, which is incidentally prohibited almost verbatim in the Constitution um, when yeah. it talks about treason. Yeah, the not Constitution a practically of says these. This is a bad <laughs> commandment. Like we we are against this. <laughs> and, and 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 that's that's the kind of point that I'm trying to make. That if you really get, if you don't just take those statements at face value and you get into the, the ins and outs of what the Ten Commandments say and what they actually mean, that they do conflict with the principles that we hold most dear in this country. And if they conflict and they don't agree to that level, I think it's perfectly fair to say that they are un-American. And I think that if we don't do that, if we refuse to label that which is antithetical to America, we are letting the Christian nationalists hijack our nation and drag it down this dark hole. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm just not going to stand by and, and watch that happen. Okay, so let me let me keep pushing you a little bit. Suppose please I'm, do. So, <laughs> I, I need like it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to the show, and um, you know, look, like I I tolerate the fact that you know Thomas and Andrew are uh, are atheists, but you know, I am uh, the a a. A, a mainstream U.S. Christian listener, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of this sort of vast majority. I I go to I church go to church once sometimes. or twice a year. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, on on Easter and Christmas, and but but I identify. It's important to me to identify as as uh, as Christian for for lots of reasons. The three of us absolutely could come up with arguments about you know where <laughs> yeah could could sit down and engage that person, but but. How would that person sort of consistent with their kind of view and, and take on life? Somebody that, um, you know, otherwise listens to the show and and is sort of on board. Um, what, how are they going to approach your book? Like what what what, um, you know, uh, is it is it reaching out to them as well or is this only a book for atheists? No, this is definitely not only a book for atheists. I mean, I do take a, a stronger line um, than other books have on this, but it's, it's, it's in a line of argument uh, because there, there have been um, a number of books out there and they're good books uh, about the trying to debunk the Christian nation myth. Um, you know, they, they, they explain what history tells us. They explain um, here's what the founders actually said. Here's, here's what they actually meant, but then they kind of leave it at that. And, and, Correction is not enough. Otherwise, we wouldn't have President Trump. So pointing out errors is insufficient. So my book, I really try to go on the offensive in this book. And I don't mean that in the way that I'm trying to offend people, but I am, I am actually trying to assault and undermine the Christian nationalist identity. Uh, because it is having such a huge impact on our on our public policy, uh, it, you know, the correcting the record is certainly important, but it, it just hasn't proven that it's enough. The book is is I think accessible to everyone. I don't know that it's gonna. <laughs> I guess it's probably not gonna convince a lot of the Christian nationalists out there. But the the goal really is to arm every other American with the facts and more importantly the arguments they need to refute those un-American ideas. And, you know, I will say that I try to treat religion as an idea like any other idea in the book, you know, not with contempt, but not with any undue respect either. And I think part of the reason that Christian nationalism has succeeded is because in this country we have sort of this ingrained unwillingness, reluctance to offend religious sensibilities. And, you know, if you if you cater to those sensibilities, it, it can limit our sense for truth, as religion 
tan itself. Um, so I think there is, is strength in throwing off those self-imposed restraints as well. Uh, but, you know, I, this is not... Um, it's not bashing religion for the sake of bashing religion and to, to try and be offensive to, uh, to get, you know, news coverage for it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there is, I think there is strength in, in approaching it from a, a, a almost not scholarly standpoint, because I think they tend to do uh, a little too much respect for no reason, but, but, you know, not giving it any undue respect essentially. Hmm. Yeah. If So how does Christian nationalism threaten sort of, you know, everyday, you know, American casual Christianity? I mean, that's, that's an excellent question. And one of the things that, that I think probably the secular movement has not been great about is explaining why separation of state and church matters to the average religious believer. Uh, and I, I try to devote a whole chapter to this in the book, but, you know, for instance, James Madison wrote that uh, religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together. He thought that to use religion as an engine of uh, civil progress was a, quote, unhallowed perversion of the means of salvation. And what, what he was talking about when he was saying those things, he's saying that when you put get religion and mix it with the the politics, which are dirty by nature, you are degrading your religion. And Christian nationalism is this, again, this incestuous marriage between conservative politics and conservative religion. It's it's using and abusing religion for political ends. And I, I would love to see American Christians, and maybe we are seeing it uh, start to happen, stand up and say, no, like, I don't, I don't want my religion to be used in this way. And I, I do think that it's un-American to be using my religion in this way. Uh, so I think there, there are certainly arguments and especially a few chapters in the book that, that will help uh, American Christians and other believers make those arguments as well. Hey listeners, Opening Arguments is sponsored by Lightstream. You know, credit card debt is a huge problem in our society today and it's really not your fault if you got caught from under it. Sometimes those interest rates kick in and, and you didn't read the fine print or maybe you had an emergency and, and just had to take out a, a credit card that wasn't favorable. We've all been there. It can be a problem, but there's a way out of it. You need to be smart and pay off your credit card balances with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Get a fixed rate as low as 5.9% APR with AutoPay. You could save thousands in interest. Stop letting those high interest cards rack up the interest on you Get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and there are no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Plus, Lightstream is a division of SunTrust Bank, one of the nation's largest financial institutions, so you have complete peace of mind. And if you want to save even more, our listeners get an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com OA. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash O-A. One more time, lightstream.com slash O-A. Go get that extra discount. This is subject to credit approval. The rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash O-A for more information. You know, I was going to, Andrew uh, Torres, you're, you're asking a lot of questions about, you know, the judiciary and what's currently happening. I was I was wondering if we were going to get any, a little bit of a history lesson. And, and I could ask you, Andrew <laughs> Seidel, the basic question of why aren't we a Christian nation? I mean, like there surely were some Christians involved in the making of this country. Um, and I imagine maybe some of them would have wanted us to be a Christian nation. But I guess shortest, uh, it might be a tough, tough thing to answer in a short time, but why aren't we a Christian nation? Why didn't it happen that way? I mean, and I should say that, you know, I kind of dispose of that question right at the beginning. Um, you know, the idea that we're a Christian nation, you know, it's again, it's been debunked by these other authors. It is really interesting. But if I think most people probably have a pretty good sense that that's not true. Um, they can they can refute it. They can point out that oh well we have a godless constitution. There's no mention of it, and it keeps religion and government separate. It says so in the First Amendment. It says so in Article Six. Uh, some people like to cite the Treaty of Tripoli. You know the United States was not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. That's a very clear statement. Yeah. Um, but but when you get stuck debating the Christian nation, the, the the fallback position almost always is well what I meant was we were actually founded on Judeo Christian principles. Mm. And, and, and that's a harder question for a number of reasons. One, because 
what the hell is a Judeo-Christian crystal? Yeah. What does that term mean? Oh, it means the good uh, ones that I agree with and are probably hopefully in the Constitution. Is that what it is? <laughs> I mean, legitimately, that is an yeah. answer I think I've heard before. I mean, and and it, the the claim is insulated because of the vagueness of that term. Yeah. And so I really and I set out to undermine and examine and debunk that claim because if you can debunk the idea that we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles, then everything else goes along with it. The idea that we're a Christian nation goes along with that. Um, so so that was really what I set out to to show. And it turns out that in my research doing this, it's not just, again, it's not just that we weren't founded on Judeo-Christian principles, but it's a good, it's a good thing that we weren't founded on those principles because they are often antithetical to the values that we as Americans hold most dear and that our nation was in fact founded on. Have, Have you heard the argument with respect to the Treaty of Tripoli that you quoted that uh, a, a different version of the treaty was ratified, mm-hmm. the one that didn't have that as a preamble. I, I just I'm curious if you've ever encountered that uh, line of argumentation before. I, ha- I have seen that line of argument um, and it's, it's not from the preamble. It's from like, I think it's from like Article 23 or 20. It's from fairly deep in, in the treaty. Um, but again, that's the beauty of of I think. I, I wish I hadn't said the beauty of my book uh, because that sounds incredibly arrogant. But that that that's why I took the tack I did in my book. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't want to just focus on that one one factual claim because it can de- be not only can it be debunked if that is in fact a, a true counter argument, but it can, you can put out a fake fact, <laughs> fake news, and the Christian nationalists are going to buy it and eat it up. Whereas if you go after their identity and the things that are most central uh, to, to that identity, then you can really uh, maybe change some minds and really undermine uh, their legislative agenda, for instance. Uh, so really, I think it, it's incumbent on us to go deeper than citing just a couple of facts here and there. It's, it's about restructuring our argument and, and pushing that argument and, and uh, the facts that go along with it. What, what kind of items right now? I mean, I think, you know, some of us know, for example, you mentioned uh, Betsy DeVos. And so something that has mm-hmm. been, you know, at the apex of what I would consider, you know, Christian nationalist uh, efforts to uh, to seize control of the education system is uh, the the uh, the notion of pushing for vouchers, which take uh, oh, yeah. money away from from public schools and give it to private schools. Um, what what other kind of of legislative uh, items are out there that uh, you know are maybe just as pernicious, but but haven't gotten as much attention? Yeah, I mean, well, and first of all, the, the real goal of, of vouchers and and they were they were very the voucher uh, movement was very clear about this at when they were born uh, a decade or so ago, and that they've started to. They got smart about their rhetoric, but the, the real goal of voucher schools was to actually dismantle the public school system as a whole. Uh, that, that was the initial push. Uh, and uh, I direct people who want to read up more on that to some of Catherine Stewart's work. She's done a great job um, kind of explaining that. But I, uh, but one of the big things that's been – I don't know if it's really under the radar, but it's certainly a big push is this uh, Project Blitz, which is being pushed by uh, the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation – uh, Wall Builders, which is an outfit run by David Barton, who's a notorious and, and leading Christian nationalist, and one or two other groups. And, and Project Blitz is, it's an attempt to do exactly what I've been talking about. It's, a, it's explicit Christian nationalism. It's a, they have a playbook that's over 100 pages, and it lays out a ton of different laws. Um, the, the new laws that have been passing around the country um, advocating for Bible classes in the public schools, putting up in God we trust in the public schools. Um, That's their first tier of laws. Uh, Tier one laws are meant to kind of help redefine what it is to be an American, to push Christianity more into the government and get people thinking about, well, to, to we the people really means we the Christians in a way. And then the second tier starts to take bites out of some of your rights. And then the third tier uh, are laws, for instance, that will redefine marriage as a man and a woman, laws that will allow uh, adoption agencies and hospitals and pharmacists to discriminate against LGBTQ people, um, outright outright discrimination. So again, the goal is to redefine what it is to be an American, 
in light of the Christian nationalists' uh, identity and re, uh, revisionist view, and then to retool all of our legislation, our laws accordingly. And, and Project Blitz is sort of the perfect encapsulation of that. I, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that. I want to link the um, the full text. Yeah, it's 148 pages long, uh, but the 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 Project Blitz uh, playbook is. Um, I mean, you are not, you are, not only are you accurately summarizing, you've, you've left out sort of the horrifying fourth section of, uh, which is sort of Newt Gingrich, Frank Luntz focus tested. Uh, it's, it's called talking points to counter anti-religious freedom legislation. Yeah. And, and the examples of anti-religious freedom legislation are, of course, adding sexual orientation as civil rights category, adding gender identity as a civil rights category, uh, prohibiting uh, conversion therapy and repealing state RIFRA. And, 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 and of those four, I mean, the only thing that is even remotely, uh, you know, de- defensible to be categorized that way would be, you know, repealing state RIFRA acts. But. But um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's if if anybody thinks that you are uh, exaggerating, I'll, I'll link the text of the show to show if anything, you are steel manning the other side when it comes to. I, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. And this is actually the second version of the playbook. Uh, you know, the, the, the first version came out um, a year before that, too. And, and it's um, not improved. Uh, but in their minds, improved, I would imagine, already. Yeah, yeah, it's it's scary how, and they're explicit about what they're trying to do. They're not hiding hiding the ball at all. You know, I don't know if this is something you would answer in your book, but why couldn't, why aren't the Judeo Christian ideals that these people want the country to be founded on? Why aren't they ever the good ones, like feeding the hungry? not being wealthy, <laughs> um, you know, not charging exorbitant interest. Like, uh, uh, there's a lot of good things that could have been the Judeo-Christian values. Why Why isn't it, the, why aren't those the ones that, you know, some Christian nationalists are fighting for? I mean, that's a very interesting question, Thomas. <laughs> I, I, do, I do not know the answer to that. Uh, I, I think... I know I'm not even going to go into it. I do. I do. I will just say I don't know. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, so I, don't I, I don't know either. I, what a, yeah. well, it's it's amazing when you actually read the Bible, as I have done, <laughs> uh, famously in podcast form. How bad the Old <laughs> Testament is, how tiny the Jesus parts are, and how not Republican they are. That's uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, why don't they look at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount where he says that you know if. If you want to pray, don't be like the hypocrites yeah. who pray in public. Yeah, uh, you know, go pray in private. But instead, we have government prayer at every level, uh, yeah. uh, from city, county, all the way up to Congress in this country. Well, yeah, uh, uh, two things. I mean, number one, um, I, for me, the the turning point where I began saying that the religious right in this country is a political movement first and a religious movement never uh, was when uh, Franklin Graham scrubbed his website of Mormonism is a cult during the 2012 presidential elections, right? Yeah. Like the, <laughs> the evangelical movement, right? And again, th- this is not to suggest you can't find this uh, from religious leaders, right? Like it's, it's everywhere, but uh, they lined up in lockstep uh, behind the Mormon candidate after, you know, uh, 150 years of uh, this is a dangerous non-Christian cult. Uh, that, you know, it's only one data point. But to me, that was a pretty strong uh, data point on on the on why, you know, that would be my answer to, to Thomas's question. Um, but you. You segued into I've, I've got to ask you at least this one, um, because you segued into uh, opening legislative sections with prayer. Um, mm-hmm. it, it So, yeah, you and I were both there for uh, Monica Miller's argument in the uh, AHA versus American Legion case and replete through the American Legion's brief in that case, which explicitly argues to overturn the lemon test in, in favor of a grotesquely unworkable test that we've we've talked about on the show on a couple of occasions. Um, but the primary case that it, that is cited more than any other in that brief is the uh, town of Greece versus Galloway decision, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, validated the uh, town of Greece beginning with a uh, 
with a prayer before the legislative sessions. We've talked about the work that FFRF does in a corporate sense and that you do individually uh, in um, trying to to narrow that decision, right, Um, to to argue that uh, uh, Galloway shouldn't apply, for example, to school board meetings, uh, particularly with uh, children representatives on the school board and, and other cases. If I were picking out of a hat, I, I would say Town of Greece is probably the primary club being wielded by the other side uh, that is looking to smash down the wall of, of, of separation of church and state. It, do, you, do you share that view? Is there, is there another case that's sort of even worse that I'm not thinking about? Is there like where's where, where, where what are you worried about in terms of sort of the near horizon in, in jurisprudence? I mean, I, I do share that view, but I, th- I think it's important for everybody to understand, too, that the town of Greece was was built on the 1983 decision, Marsh versus Chambers, in which the Supreme Court used history, and I'll say bad history, to essentially say that, look, this has been happening for a really long time in our country. The founders did it at about the same time they passed the First Amendment. Heck, they even did it before the First Amendment was around. So they obviously don't think it's unconstitutional. So basically, the First Amendment doesn't really, uh, our First Amendment tests and jurisprudence don't really apply to government prayer. Uh, And it goes to kind of the central point that I'm trying to make in the book, which is that, you know, these these historical lies and myths are are important to refute because they have this power. I mean that that decision then was directly the town of Greece decision was directly based on that 1983 Morse versus Chambers decision, which was directly based on this bad history. I mean, so you you can draw a line connecting those, and I mean the, to get a little bit more to the point that you to your question. The, the the really scary version of what could happen uh, would be that <clears throat> the court says, you know what, throughout history, basically, if the government wasn't coercing you into some sort of religious practice or into some sort of religious observance that you disagreed with, then it wasn't a problem. You know, when the, found, the founders, when they were separating state and church, they were only trying to say that, um, you know, things like the... Um, the Spanish Inquisition were not okay. That that was coercive, and anything less than that is is not really what we were talking about when we were talking about separating state and church at the at the beginning of the United States. That you could get a decision like that. It would, I think, it would be based heavily on bad history, and it would shift from the lemon test to the coercion test, uh, which has not been really ever put into practice before. Uh, and the bar for coercing somebody. For the government coercing somebody into a religious practice is incredibly high. It's, it's almost impossible to meet. And if, if that shift happens, and it could happen, I mean, it could theoretically happen in the AHA case, the Bladensburg case that you just mentioned, uh, that would be, I mean, that would essentially tear down the wall of separation between state and church altogether. And we'd be left standing on this rubble trying to figure out how to fight it. Yeah, that that is the primary argument that that was advanced by the American Legion in that case. So, um, well, you've done a great job of uh, of out depressing me on <laughs> on this on this episode. Uh, any well, well, let's also let's also say too that though that would that would also they'd be shooting themselves in the foot if they did that too. I mean, I, I think I've said this on your show before. There is no freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. You know, the the free exercise of religion that they are claiming to fight for does not exist without a secular government. You know, and if so if you do away with the rules that make sure we have a secular government, you are absolutely rolling back religious freedom. And they're doing it because they're in the they're okay with doing it because they happen to be in the majority right now. But we all know that the demographics are are saying that that's not going to be the case for very long. Well, on that, uh, on that, that note, is that yeah. a happier note to end on? <laughs> I think that's a good uh, note to go out on here. Um, just a reminder again: the book is called "The Founding Myth." It is uh, uh, why Christian nationalism is un-American, and it is out on May fourteenth at fine Amazons everywhere that Amazons are. <laughs> or is there any other place we need to direct people to? 
Well, if people want a signed copy, they Ooh. can buy from ffrf.org. That is a fantastic idea. They, yeah, if they mention in the checkout thing, uh, you know, that you want a signed copy or ask me to write something in it, I will do that. And I might I might do that. <laughs> and I might I might have we you write something happen. like, I'm the better lawyer, better at TTPE. Speaking of, we're, we, we need to get to our <laughs> TTPE answer. All right, but before we get to that, Andrew Torres, we've got to thank our new patrons over at patreon.com slash law. And we begin with Julie Benson. Chugga, 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 chugga. Boutros, Boutros, golly. What? <laughs> Boutros. Boutros, 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 golly. Ex, okay, I don't know what that is. UN General Secretary. Yeah. yeah. That, all right, sure. Kenny, <laughs> Kenny Coy, Denver Lodge, Joe Heron. I'm not giving my name to a machine. <laughs> Perfidious Pete. <laughs> Let me clear. Oh, wow, this is breaking my brain. Let me clear totally B. I clearly shouldn't have eaten that B. <laughs> Okay. Tony <laughs> Belaganti, your turn. Uh, and thank you to Mateus Pasternak to sizzle my meatloaf. Well, you know, you, 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 gave, us, you gave us a buck. I'll sizzle your meatloaf, buddy. Uh, Joel Hillman, Dean A. Batha, David Derby, Emily, Jason Wright, Curtis Frax. There's an unpronounceable character in the middle of that. So if I've messed it up, let me know. Hot Spear Swim Boys, take your valuables for swim and be visible to surfers. Yeah. And Thomas Mayer, NPC. Oh, our first non, NPC player character. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, well, there you go. I really like the idea that uh, former UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali is a uh, is a patron of the show. That would be, that would be I don't understand any part of that. That was came out of nowhere for me. But okay, I also like that we're finally getting the uh, NPC uh, market segment. That uh, we've been gunning hard for the the NPCs of all your favorite games. It's a bit. It's a yeah. growing market. It's going to outnumber real humans soon. So. <laughs> oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. But now it is time for the moment of reckoning. Yeah. Uh, Thomas and Andrew take the bar exam. This was uh, question 125, and this is an evidence question. Everything else was a, an attractive or maybe not so attractive distractor. Um, this was a uh, defendant charged with fraud doing the old switcheroo. Took a price tag from a cheaper coat, stuck it on a fur coat. Tried to check out, said, uh, well, I don't know how that test. Somebody else must have switched that tag. Uh, on cross-examination, the prosecutor uh, wants to ask uh, and introduce into evidence that uh, whether the defendant was convicted on two prior occasions of misdemeanor fraud of a retailer by the same means, the switcheroo. And so the question is, uh, is the question about prior convictions proper either to impeach the defendant or to prove that the defendant committed the crime, or both, or neither. Um, so uh, let's let's go to the answers that uh, that you both agreed were incorrect. Um, you both excluded D. It was proper to prove that the defendant committed the crime, but not to impeach the defendant. Um, that's a good elimination. Um, I can't think of any standards uh, under the rules of evidence, right, where something would be admissible to prove the underlying fact, but not as impeachment. Um, that that's everything I know. Nor goes could the I, other way Andrew Torres. Yeah. Nor could I. <laughs> Good work. That's why I um, expertly, <laughs> deftly eliminated that one. Yep. Uh, and then, although it was part of uh, Thomas's uh, uh, second chance, uh, you and Andrew both eliminated a uh, not proper for either purpose. Also. Good elimination. Although Andrew uh, Seidel's, you know, was using the like Princeton review method to get there. So, um. no, no, man. If you th this seriously, if you're taking the bar, time matters. Like, if you yeah. see an answer that's an odd man out, just ignore it altogether. Don't even read. My it. number one like, time saving. Legit. Yeah, my number one time saving tip is uh, real property. Just, just kill yourself. Don't even just. <laughs> yeah, that's also a good just tip. Get also, up and I, leave. I endorse that yeah. too. <laughs> leave the room. Okay. Um, yeah, no, uh, uh, obviously, and again, common sense, I think, gets you there, right? Obviously, right? She's, she switched the tags. Like, obviously, you're going to be able to introduce in court, uh, don't you do this kind of thing all the time? Um, <laughs> and, and in fact, um, this is what they call prior bad act evidence. And, and Thomas, you um, kind of referenced this in, uh, in trying to decide your answer that 
um, that there is uh, a question in the federal rules of evidence whether uh, you can admit prior bad acts um, because, you know, they they obviously are, are very prejudicial. Uh, so, Thomas, you went with C, proper for impeachment, but not to prove that the defendant committed the crime. Andrew, you went with B, proper for both purposes. Um, and I, I will tell you, the answer is, in fact, B. Um, it is proper for both purposes. This, I think, is the first time Andrew Seidel picked an answer different than Thomas. Um, and and Thomas, I'm sad to say that uh, that the lawyer okay. got this one right. Um, so why is it proper for both purposes? It's it's proper for impeachment um, because uh, you can impeach with examples of uh, prior criminal activity that. Um, reflect on the defendant's character for truthfulness right and mm. i i seem to recall we had a like uh a, a feeding pigeons in the yeah. park tttv yeah. like a year ago right and it was like can you introduce the prior conviction for jaywalking well no you can't introduce the prior conviction for jaywalking because that didn't have anything to do with uh dishonesty or false statement but if somebody's been convicted of a crime that involves being dishonest you're allowed to introduce that to impeach to be like, well, come on, you're 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 kind of a dishonest person. Um, so it is correct that uh, that you can use the prior, even though it's a misdemeanor, uh, the prior fraud convictions to impeach. Um, you can also admit for proof of the underlying crime, uh, because here the bad acts directly show yeah. uh, that that they are relevant to. Uh, the intent, knowledge, uh, or the modus operandi—I I think uh, uh, use yeah. that phrase. Um, I.e., that that you that you behave in a particular way. Like uh, my, um, we always discuss this in in evidence classes, kind of like the you know the signature. Oh of, of yeah, the wet defense, bandits, right? the wet bandit rule. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Ah. Um, and- for the record, I hated using the phrase modus operandi. I couldn't think of the, the, the non-douchebag way to say that, unfortunately. Well, uh, the the National Council of Bar Examiners are also douchebags, apparently. So, well, um, all right, Andrew Seidel, you win this time. You win this time. But next you're time. You're still the better man, Thomas. Yeah. Did, you, did you shake your finger, you know, reprovingly yeah. at him? That's... I'll get you next time. So, uh, that's okay. I, I should have known. Oh, well. Uh, it makes sense when you lay it out like that. I should, of course, have remembered the Wet Bandit rule since it's a current movie from 1992 or whatever uh, under Andrew Torres's <laughs> rules of uh, timely evidence. And so, well, you win. I, I got to hand it to you. you this is going to be a big boon for your book sales. You've proven <laughs> <laughs> you've proven that you can out-lawyer a non-lawyer, and that's that's good. That's a bare minimum. I'll get them to put that on the second printing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the jacket for the second printing. I'm, 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 I out-lawyered a non-lawyer. I'm very offended that you didn't ask for my endorsement on your book, but uh, <laughs> perhaps next time. Uh, no, let's uh, go into the limited use time machine, Mr. Torres, and tell us who this week's big winner is. Well, and as I am stepping into the limited use time machine, I want to point out we had a Hall of Fame patron last week who went in under the name Karnak the Magnificent picks B for TTTBE, and Karnak the Magnificent also got it right. So, Holy moly. Uh, so what you're saying is everybody's smarter than me, even random... <laughs> <laughs> fictional characters or something yes okay. that is Got exactly sure. what i am saying uh including bits from the johnny carson show um no all right so uh off into the time machine now. meanwhile at the hall of justice well, Thomas, you can take some solace in knowing that lots and lots of people got this question wrong. Uh, looked like most of the answers on social media were split between A and C. So I picked the best incorrect answer, which was Paul Robertson at Paul Robertson 18 on Twitter, who writes, I'm going with A because Andrew Seidel poo pooed that one. And so if I'm right, I get double points. Uh, great. Game theory strategy there, Paul. Sadly, it was a good poo-poo. A is incorrect. C is incorrect. The only person who got it correct was Andrew Seidel. And um, and there we go. That is this week's TTTBE. Everyone, give Paul Robertson, at Paul Robertson 18, a follow on Twitter. And enjoy your never-ending incorrect fame and fortune. 
All right, another big thanks to Andrew Seidel. Check out the book. A very important topic, and I can't wait to read it myself and make uh, Andrew Seidel uh, write me something very lovely on the on the cover because I'm going to buy it through FFRF. So I'm excited for that. <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see everybody Friday for a rapid response. You betray the law! This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Opening Arguments is produced with the assistance of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, our production assistant, Ashley Smith, and our researcher, Deborah Smith. Special thanks to Teresa Gomez and the entire OA Wiki team. Follow them at, at OA Wiki. And a big thank you to our Facebook group moderators, Alicia Cook, Natalie Newell, Emily Waters, Eric Brewer, and Brian. Check out the Opening Arguments Facebook community. And finally, thanks to Thomas Smith for creating the show's theme song, which is used with permission.